We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 today, and we will look at verse 17 to 21 as the primary text for our big idea and our main applications as a church. Let me state from the beginning what I hope will be two responses from God's word as we hear it, receive it, hopefully believe it, apply it to our lives. Response number one, praise, songs of praise. There's a reason we sang what we've sung so far. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Second song. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. So is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Song 3. To reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost, to redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side, knowing this was our salvation. Jesus, for our sake, you died. These themes that we have already sung so far are straight out of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. I hope you will not just have sung them in our service so far, but you will sing them throughout the week. Takeaway number two, very, very practically, how do you answer four extremely difficult questions? Question one, what would you recommend someone to do who's living underneath severe persecution from political rulers in their country, persecution for their Christian faith. Would you tell them to stay or leave? Question two, what would you tell a master, a, sorry, a slave who is being maligned by his master? If you knew a slave, who was being unjustly treated by a master, what would you tell them to do? Try and break free, run away, or patiently endure suffering? Question three. What would you tell a wife who has a heathen husband who does not obey God's word and hold it with esteem? Divorce him. Run, leave the marriage, be happy, be free, or stay in the marriage and let your conduct win him over. Question four, what would you tell a relative who is being reviled and slandered because they chose not to attend 
the weekend party filled with drinking and drunkenness. I'm hoping you will praise the redemption of the precious blood of Jesus with full gusto because of the time we spend reading, studying, understanding 1 Peter, but also be granted wisdom to know how to answer those four questions. Let's read the text. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. God's word is powerful. It should lead you to praise. It should lead you to endure many various trials in this life. One sentence, our passage teaches us that if our hope in God powers our holiness, then it's our fear of God that protects this hope-fueled holiness. We're in a section in 1 Peter that is laying the groundwork for the specific applications related to how to live in a political environment with severe persecution by the Roman Empire. Where slaves who are Christians who have no rights should stay and submit to their masters. Where wives should not leave their husbands. And where friends and family members continue to endure slander, reviling, and mistreatment because they do not give in to the temptation to the drinking parties. Those are the things that Peter is about to specifically address in this letter, but before he gets to those, he's laying the groundwork. And the groundwork that we've seen is hope. Hope in Christ. The resurrection of the living God is your hope. Do you see that in verse 3? The living hope. Set your hope fully in the grace that is coming in the second coming of Jesus. That's verse 13. Hope. And this hope is how our passage ends. Verse 21. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Hope produces holiness. We talked about that a lot last week. If you weren't here, please catch up and listen to the exposition of verses 13 to 16. Hope enables, produces, and empowers holy living. This week, we'll continue the conversation that we left off with. 
if hope produces and empowers holiness, then what is this commandment in verse 17? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What does fear have to do with any of this? And the answer is that the fear of God protects like guardrails on the road to keep you from going right or left over a cliff. It tells you the path forward. Fear of God will protect our hope-fueled holiness. Fear does not, I believe, produce holiness. Hope does. But fear of God, not man, does have an important role to play for preservation of holy conduct. That's what we want to unpack this morning. If you're struggling with me stating it plainly, let me illustrate it. Airplanes. In order for an airplane to take off, it needs fuel. In order for it to be useful, it needs a destination. And in order for it to fly, it needs wings. Holiness is the destination. Jet fuel that gets you off the ground toward holiness is hope. And the wings, two wings, are the fear of the Father who is a judge. That's wing number one. And the fear that you would forsake the gift of salvation. Treating the precious blood of Jesus as trite. If you know full well the payment for the plane ticket to heaven, you might be a little more grateful when the plane gets bumpy. When the baby next to you starts crying and you were trying to sleep. But too many Christians are riding in their airplane and they're forgetting that they're in the air. They're seated with Jesus Christ. There's a destination of glory and holiness, and they're on that way already. And hope got them there. So, in our time together, we want to consider the way the fear of the Lord protects hope-fueled holiness. With these two wings, wing number one is verse 17, the Father who judges. Wing number two is 18 to 21. The salvation that has redeemed you by the precious blood of the Lamb of Jesus who was spotless, without blemish, foreknown before the foundation of the world, manifest for you in these last days, resurrected from the dead, seated in glory. It's glorious. Holiness is the prize, that's the goal. Hope is the power, that's the motivation, fear is the path. Our text is about the fear. Conduct yourselves with fear. So let's unpack that. Point one, the fear of the Father. Verse 17. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of of your exile. This is an if-then statement. It's a conditional clause. If. If you call on him as father, you're supposed to answer the question, do you call on him as father? 
Are you an obedient child, as verse 14 says, as obedient children? Have you been adopted and made alive and born again, as verse 4, 3 says? He caused us to be born again to a living hope. As he's about to say, actually, that we have been born again in verse 23 of chapter 1. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Are you children? Children call out to their father. He's saying, if you do that, assuming that you do, because if you're a child, that's what you do. Then, what should you do? Presuming upon your calling upon the Lord as your father, then conduct yourselves. This is a very general kind of word about how you should live, your way of life. That's why I really like that idea of this is the path. And one border to keep you on the path is the knowledge of God as your heavenly father who's also the judge. So walk the path with a fear, a reverence, an awe, an uttermost respect that the supreme goal of your life is that you would reflect his holiness by wanting to be like him and please him. You see how our airplane can quickly shoot up into the air like a rocket and then come crashing down if you do not have a reverent respect of God as father and judge. It protects, it preserves, it maintains the flight that took off when you set your hope fully on the Lord. Do you understand this? Father and judge. What an interesting juxtaposition. I asked my children this week, children, are you ever afraid of your father? What do you think they said? They seemed afraid to answer the question. (laughs) And then they went on to share, yes, sometimes. Sometimes you talk loud. You're stern. Sometimes you're grouchy. I am a sinner. Follow-up question. Children, do you think your daddy loves you? They weren't afraid to answer that one. Yes. There's no need to choose between loving father who disciplines children And that that should cause one to humbly, reverently respect his authority. This, by the way, is a debated doctrine by some. He will judge each one according to his deeds. Oh, he's talking about the judgment of those non-Christians, right? I don't think so. Actually, all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's this repeated theme of, The coming judgment, judgment day. If you listened carefully, you already heard it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when Anna got up for us and read that passage. It was all talking about believers. There was no contrast between believers and unbelievers. And then in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, we hear this comment about how God will judge according to your deeds. And our passage says, and he doesn't play favorites. If you think that because of certain things you've done, said, church attendance, 
you name it, whatever you think that resume is, and you go before the judge, daddy, little girl, you're going to give me a pass on this one. No. Now it's clear when you read 1 Corinthians 3, if you'd like another passage to go home and study, that talks about the judgment for Christians. Again, a debated, but I don't think very obscure kind of thing. Christians and non-Christians will be judged. It doesn't mean that you won't be saved. 1 Corinthians 3 makes that actually really clear. But all that you built in this life that wasn't built on Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, will be burned before that judgment seat. Could you imagine the feeling, and Paul calls it the feeling of loss, that you stand before the throne and you say, here's what I have to present you, and then it vanishes. Your whole life was built not on Christ. And obviously, you need to understand the nuances. Whole life, maybe an overstatement, but that too much of your life was being built on something other than the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And he's, he's saying what Jesus is saying. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you and you will have treasures in heaven when we give our lives to building on Christ. That's the idea. And then when you get to the judgment day, the idea would be that whatever is not of Christ, even though you're saved, will be burned and lost. Being saved is really wonderful. But if you're on the airplane and your luggage that you're carrying, that you're going to present before the Lord as like, here's the summary of my life, and a good 50 to 60% of that is a bunch of wasted, futile, ungodly behavior, he's going to say, that was, that was a waste. So there is a warning of facing judgment as a Christian. Peter makes this clear in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4, you'll notice in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The living and the dead. It's another instance of New Testament authors thinking through the universality of second coming judgment. So why get on the plane in the first place? Hope. Hope in Christ. Hope in the gift of salvation that you can have a ticket and it was paid for not by your good works, not by your merits, not because you're worthy of it, but because of his redeeming grace. But just because you have a seat on the plane does not mean that you won't have much to be accountable for as a believer. Let me, let me throw out one more example of this. And this applies to me as a pastor. Why would James, Jesus' half-brother, say to teachers and pastors, 
it's kind of a weighty responsibility to teach the Bible. You will be given a stricter judgment. What, what does that mean? Is it possible that some pastors and teachers are saved, but then will be disciplined, judged, not have the same experience reward in the second coming? I think the answer is yes. Or Hebrews chapter 13 verse 70 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they must give an account to God for your soul. I have to give an account for church members? Do you see what I'm saying? I can have hope and confidence in God as my father and my salvation, not being by my good works or how good I pastored, but at the same time, I can have fear of God that respects and reveres him as, I should, I should take care of those sheep. I should teach God's word faithfully. I shouldn't put away First Peter next week. I should stay in the word of God instead of thinking, well, what do I want to start talking about? Do you see the difference between salvation for all of your sins as a free gift and still being accountable to your heavenly father? That's the first wing on the plane. And I think if you lose that wing, you're going to spiral down in your holiness. Remember those questions? What should you do? If you are living in the Roman Empire and you're being taxed like crazy, any of you tired of Illinois taxes? Property taxes? Let's go back 2,000 years ago. Let's think about tax collectors. Do you know that some estimates are that you would have been taxed 70% of your income in the Roman Empire? You've got no rights. You're a Jewish boy or girl. You're, you're, you're a Gentile citizen that's not from the Roman Empire. You're a slave. What should you do? Should you try and run for your life? Let's, let's head to the hills. Why does Peter, knowing that in all of these different locations in verses 1 and 2 in the opening letter, not give some counsel anywhere in the letter to say, run, persevere, stand fast, endure? Why, why would he tell women who have husbands that do not obey the word to continue to respect and revere their husband, that non-Christian husband, more than likely? But even, how about a, a Christian husband who's disobeying God's word deliberately? Is that immediate ejection? Remove yourself from the marriage. If you trace the theme of fear, the first time it appears in 1 Peter is our verse, verse 17. But it's not the last time. And repeatedly, Peter continues to answer these questions by saying, fear God, not man. Do you see how this maintains holiness? That when your ultimate fear is on humans and what they can do to you, even kill you, and not on God, Fearing that you might do something to compromise your witness, to not live faithfully, to not obey him. That, my friends, is something to tremble at. So this is the basic idea that's weaving through 1 Peter as he gets into very practical issues these people are facing. Fear God. Don't fear the emperor. Honor him, but fear God. 
he says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. Some of you have some good masters. Some of you have unjust masters. But follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who was like a sheep led to the slaughter and didn't open his mouth when people reviled him and spit on him and punched him in the face. He did not say a word. But instead, here's the key idea. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. This is where the gospel and judgment come together. Jesus Christ died in part because he didn't speak back and he willingly, like a sheep led to the slaughter, entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter wants you to get the idea that in order to answer very difficult, real, space-time, universe questions, like real practical stuff, marriage difficulties, job difficulties with a boss that's persecuting you and not giving you the raise that you deserve, you've worked harder than that other person, but because you're a Christian, they looked past you. What do you do? You got options. Many of you do. Many of these people, they did not. Keep that in mind as we're studying 1 Peter. They're not as mobile as we are in terms of being able to just, oh, just go move to a new town. You're getting a lot of flack from a governor in your town? Just move. You don't like the taxes? Head over to Spain. Go over to Asia. Easy for you to say. There aren't airplanes 2,000 years ago. So he has a consistent message. Fear God and entrust yourself to the Father who judges and he does not play favorites. Everybody will have the same scale. Do you take comfort in that? This, this is both threatening because it would be dangerous for you to think lightly of this, but comforting. If you're being mistreated, God will hold them to account. Do you see how it, it actually can provide both comfort and conviction? Fear the Father. If you do, then you will conduct your lives in the ways that Peter is encouraging you to do in this letter. Throughout the time of your exile, throughout the time of your exile, Exile is hard. It requires endurance. Do you realize you Christians here in 2023, United States of America, you're in exile? It's hard. Living faithfully as a follower of Jesus, you will be maligned at some point or another. You will be mistreated. You will have a friend or a family member that's wondering, why aren't you joining our Christmas party? Why aren't you getting drunk with the rest of us? Don't you care about our family? Does your respect and fear of God surpass your fear 
of man. Point two, the other wing of the plane, the precious blood of Jesus. Look at it with me again in verse 18, starting with this descriptor of how we're supposed to conduct ourselves with fear. It's not literally there, but the way this is written, you could add the word because. So I'm going to read it that way. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile because you know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Number two, the precious blood of Jesus. It's a fearful thing to get the ticket to heaven, climb up in the airplane, and for you to be disrespectful to the supreme and infinite cost that was required for you to get on that plane. You should be afraid that it would be possible, because it is. Why else would this command be here if it weren't possible for you and I to go back to the feudal ways of our forefathers or to conform ourselves to the passions of our former ignorance? Why would he command those things? Because it's possible. You can get up on that airplane and you could start acting like a jerk. You could start thinking about how difficult and uncomfortable your seat is. Instead of overwhelmed in awe-struck wonder that you are on the plane. Do you ever think that way? Do you, do you see how this balances us out? and maintains momentum where hope fuels the holiness. But in order for it to continue in air, we need a reverent fear of God as Father and a supreme wonder as God as rescuer, redeemer. The precious blood of Jesus. This is why Ryan read for us Isaiah chapter 52. And he said that it seems as if Peter is referencing that passage. I'll read it once more, just the one line that I think is key here. This is Isaiah 52, 3. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Now, why do I think he's referencing that passage? Because what I already read for you earlier in chapter 2 is a definite, clear reference that the lamb who was slain and led to the slaughter that did not revile in return, that passage in chapter 2, is clearly talking about Isaiah 53. So if you take Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, you realize Peter's got on his mind that this suffering servant who would become a lamb, which our passage clearly references, would shed his blood for your sake and you would not be redeemed or ransomed with money, gold, or silver, but with something far more priceless, precious, valuable. Do you understand the supreme value 
of God redeeming you from the futile ways, redeeming, ransoming. You're enslaved, and this word here means you were bought, set free, plucked out of slavery, and given the gift of freedom. Not freedom to do whatever you want. Chapter 2 makes clear, don't use your freedom to go live back in sensual passions. Use your freedom to submit to the master. So wait, are we free because we've been bought? Or are we still a slave? Still a slave. You just have a better master. You have a good master. And you should compare and contrast. You, as the autonomous self, as the master before Christ broke in, redeemed you, rescued you, pulled you out. How much better of a master is King Jesus than you are for your own life? Or your mom and dad? Or your family of heritage? Or the traditional religion you grew up with? Where has God pulled you out of? What have you inherited when you were born into this world that's empty and futile? Think through that. Think how much better it is to have a God who looks you in the face and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon, take my yoke upon you and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come, oh come to the altar. Jesus is calling. Forgiveness was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Did you just sing that because that was the first song? Or did you sing it because it's precious? Do you see the difference? Holiness will be fueled by hope of the grace that's coming when Christ returns. Rights will be made wrong. Wrongs will be made right. The judge will come. Everything will be set before him. And there's nobody getting away with any of that mistreatment, maligning, slandering. No heathen husbands are going to just get away scot-free. So God wants to remind us that the goal is holy living as he is holy, as verse 16 says. That the way that we do that, the path with our borders on each side, are a reverent fear of the Father and an awestruck valuing of the infinite cost of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or you could say what I've been saying for several weeks now. The way that you live as a Christian will be directly linked to your understanding of the gospel. You're knowing the gospel, as verse 18 says, because you already know, because you know the gospel. Well, if they already know the gospel, why are you telling them the gospel again? Because you forget. Because you wake up some weeks without a second wing and you're spinning around or you fall off a cliff and you forget how precious the blood of Jesus is. You start valuing trinkets and toys and job promotions. 
You start valuing your children more than you value God. You start valuing success and fame. You start valuing a pat on the back and the pleasure of somebody telling you how great you are. Beauty, fleeting beauty, physically that is. The external beauty that he calls to women in 1 Peter chapter 3, women. How do you adorn yourselves with internal beauty and sustain the onslaught of advertisements that tell you you're ugly unless you look like her? How? The gospel. Your value is not in external beauty, braided hair, jewelry, clothing that you wear. Your value is in the heart of a woman who trusts and fears God. And the only way to sustain that kind of momentum is by knowing that he loves you. He would give anything for you. Do you believe it? Do you know it? Did you ever forget that? Is it quick for you to forget how much God loves you in Christ? Why did Jesus die on the cross for your sins? There's so many ways to answer that question. Set you free from your slavery? Give you a new life? Give you a new heart? All of that is wrapped up in this. But let me point out one little detail that sometimes might be overlooked. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for. Why was Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, foreknown before the world was even made? So this is talking about his eternal deity. Was made manifest. This is now talking about his incarnation. Why was Jesus born? Why was he made manifest? What's the answer according to this text? For what? For you. For your sake. Now, the ultimate answer the Bible gives us to answer that question is for the glory of the Father. For the glory of God, Jesus died on the cross. But it is not incorrect to say that the Father gets glory when you become made new in Jesus Christ. When you put your hope in him. When you put your trust in him. He looks great when we have a whole room full of people that are saying, this God, he is the Father and Judge, and He is the loving, rescuing Redeemer, and He has died for me. And so therefore, I am giving complete surrender and control to the pilot on the plane who is Jesus Christ. Through Him, the text says, you are believers in God. 21. Verse 21 says, through him, through Christ, you have faith and trust because he raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So, the gospel tells us what we already heard a few weeks ago. The path has two basic themes. Suffering. Subsequent glories. Suffering first, then glories. Do you remember that in chapter 1? Verse 11, inquiring the old prophets, the time that the Spirit of Christ in them would indicate when he predicted the sufferings and the glories. Our passage talks about the Lamb who gave his life and spilled his blood, suffered in your place. He died and then was resurrected and given glory. Suffering, then glory. 
This is the path for you too. If you are in him, if you're on that plane, that plane will be rocky. That plane involves various necessary trials. That plane will include maligning, slandering, being mistreated, being unjustly treated as a Christian. And those sufferings will not even be close to comparing to the glories that are to come. And the reason you know that is because look at what happened to Jesus. So, how many of you want to sit around and complain that the Wi-Fi is not working on your airplane? Or are you willing to sit back and as uncomfortable as it is, be able to say, I'm on the plane. The ticket was purchased with something so valuable. The most infinite treasure that exists is God himself. And he gave himself for me. And when you and I just stand back and utter awe and amazement, which is another concept that fear includes, just utter reverential awe, you're going to fly in holiness. Fly, soaring above all of the debauchery of this world. So that, I believe, is the message for you today. Hope in God fuels distinct holy living, even under the most difficult of circumstances, like political corruption, like slaves needing to obey their unjust masters, like wives who have a horrible heathen husband, and like friends and family members who continue to call you out when you don't engage in their drinking parties. And so, so much more. But it'll be worth it. Do you believe that there is a coming judge who will make it right? And do you believe that you should be judged for all of your many sins you've committed against the Father? Every single thing that you have done, he knows it all but that you can call him Father because of the precious blood of Jesus. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we want to give you praise. We want to praise you for your supreme and infinite knowledge of every detail, of every human, of every thought that goes on in our lives from the moment we were born to the moment we take our last breath. We want to praise you for being the father who judges without showing favoritism to Jewish children over Gentile children. We want to praise you for being a God who knows every one of our deeds and you will be fair. We want to praise you that we can call you father and that we should call out to you as our Father, because of the precious blood of Jesus. We have no business being adopted into a family like this. With the forefathers that we inherited, with the former ignorance of our lustful passions and the way we've lived, Father, we praise you. We praise you for your supreme demonstration of utter mercy and infinite grace that you would send forth your Son and make him known to us 
and that he would be willing, not begrudgingly, but willing to die on the cross and suffer in our place. We praise you that the suffering of Christ was not the end of the story, but his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is where we are right now today. Thank you, Father, for new birth and the ability to talk about things related to fearing you and living in holy conduct and these not be dreams, but realities in the brothers and sisters that are sitting around us right now actually are different people. What a gift to be in a church and see the gospel on display week after week and hear testimonies every Sunday of how you are changing people's lives by the power of the gospel. And I pray that you will do it once again, not just for our sake, but ultimately for your supreme glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.